If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and put your finger in uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to spend some time there this morning. But uh, one of the things, I've been a pastor for over 20 years. But I've never been the pastor. And does that make sense? I mean, I've been a pastor, and I understand what it means to to minister and to shepherd. But there's a big difference when you become the pastor. One of those things that has become been since the beginning. I mean, I realize God's given me responsibility from people I mean, puts under my care, and that's a heavy burden. What it's a weight. It's but it's something that I realize. They the longer I'm in ministry is that He bears that. I'm just going to, as long as I rest. Now here's a, and one I'm of the not, things just, I'm, just, I'm learning is the Bible say, talks and, and about kind of the, the pastor they, likens him to a shepherd. Jesus being the chief shepherd. Uh, I, I, see Jesus as he ministers. He ministers like a shepherd. That if, and the people that God places that, under a pastor's got a, care, got the a, Bible likens them to sheep. Let's, let's just, and the shepherd's responsibility it is two responsibilities. It, 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 we're we're laid, responsible that, for doing and, two and, things. And, and, and that's to uh, provide provisions. That's food and water. Chapter the natural. Chapter 8. Protection. Security uh, so that those the religious can grow and produce wool to the meat. religious. It's literally, you know, kind of like works. So the sheep can do what they're supposed to do. Okay. And I don't take either of these you responsibilities are, lightly. Are, they're heavy. Just, my and job kind of, and my responsibility is, is to give the, provision. The, it's, the, it's, to, the, it's to bring uh, food and, and, and teaching I, and understanding to God's Word. But it's also to protect. One of the things I, I believe... Regarding protection, is, is my responsibility is to pray for you, and, and I pray for you. But I also think that one of my responsibilities in protecting you is to teach you to protect yourself and to teach you to fight. Now, literally, sheep, are, they don't protect themselves, okay? But God's also called us not just to be sheep. He's called us to be soldiers. And so, one of the things... I want to do, and from time to time, God says, okay, I want you to forget whatever it was you were thinking about preaching. Here's something I want you to teach a little bit this morning. So what I'm going to teach you this morning is not new. It's not anything you, have, you haven't ever heard. Uh, probably some of you can quote the passages by heart. I know I can. But the problem is, is that when we get so familiar with passages, is we forget what those passages really mean. I've used this illustration over and over. When I played football in high school, when you start out in the seventh, eighth grade, you blocked and tackled, blocked and tackled. Block. You learned, you had all these drills that, I mean, I'm telling you, I hated them because you had to stand there just like this and let somebody run over you, okay? Rarely do you get to tackle anybody that's just standing like this, but we, we did those drills. And then as, as I got into you know, the ninth grade and, and tenth grade and began to play varsity football, we did other drills. But here's what would happen inevitably. Every time we lost a game, on Monday, we would go back to those seventh grade drills where you stood there, blocked and tackled. Because that's how you win football games, blocking and tackling. And so what I'm going to talk about today is blocking and tackling, in a sense, in the Christian life. Uh, a statement I've heard over the last several months from many of you is, I just seem to be under attack by the devil. Welcome. <laughs> I feel your pain. I understand where you're at. Over the last six months, Kathy and I have probably experienced on a daily basis, really, and, and, and I'm going to share just briefly some things, but unparalleled in my life as a pastor, spiritual attack. I, some of you know this, some of you don't know this, but when I was at Gardendale and when I was at Crossgates, I dealt a great deal in, in spiritual warfare and, and I, I worked in deliverance and that kind of ministry so I've I know what the devil smells like I know what the demons I know what they sound like I know I understand that stuff I, I, I understand but I've never been under such spiritual attack it, it's a different level now I thought when I went to cross gates it stepped up from Gardell and it did but when I came back it went out of the park there's been moments since uh, that we started this journey when literally it was mind numbing overwhelming the attacks came from every direction. They came from every conceivable way imaginable. Uh, even when we did simple things, there was opposition. One of these days, I'm, I'm going to write down all the stuff. I mean, we'd take one step forward and ten steps backwards. I mean, we'd do simple things like fill out insurance papers and in four weeks call to find out what's the deal, and they say, hey, we don't even have them. 
And the next day, oh, we got them. The insurance card came in the mail. I'm just talking about all kinds of wild stuff. If something can go wrong, it went wrong. And it just didn't go wrong. It went wrong in the most frustrating, aggravating way. And you know what? As a human being, your tendency is to say, God, why me? I'm just doing what you told me to do. I'm doing it to the best of my ability. I'm not living in sin as far as I know. I'm not being disobedient. I'm not in rebellion. I'm doing exactly what you've told me to do. And if I'm missing something, please show me where I'm missing it. And I, I'll be honest with you. There were moments, and there were mo- there have been moments this week, and there was a moment as I drove up the hill this morning where I wanted to give up. I'm going to be transparent with you guys, okay? I don't want you to think I float above the ground because I don't. I, I crawl on the ground. I, I live in the same place you guys live. It's raining. God, hey, Nelson, there, there's not going to be anybody there this morning. Nobody. You're going to have to set it all up by yourself. You know, just stuff like that. But the thing that I know is that most of you are experiencing the same thing. It's not just me and Kathy. Amen? It's you. It may be oh me. That's a good, that's a good word there. Every, I, I would dare say most of the people in here are doing it. Circumstances and, and situations in your lives, in our lives, that have been settled and peaceful for a long time, all of a sudden have just started to upheave. They've, they've just been turned upside down. Jobs and careers. Places you've worked for years and years and years. All of a sudden, hey, you know what? In a few weeks, we're not going to need you anymore. Or the job that you were counting on, hey, you know what? We gave it to someone else. I'm going to use Jim as an illustration, but sickness and disease. Jim agreed to lead worship, and the next week, Sandy gets a diagnosis that uh, she's got cancer. And there's been some other things. I remember, I don't see Anthony, but uh, Anthony works with us here at the school. He, he's one of the, the maintenance guys, and, and he's, he's our connection here. If we don't have him, we can't meet here. Well, all of a sudden he gets a bad report from the doctor, and it doesn't look real good. And we pray, and God answers the prayer. But you know what? For some of us, God hadn't answered that prayer yet, and we just keep praying. Sickness, job, finances, careers. I mean, some of you are stressed out. You're discouraged. Maybe you're depressed. i got to be honest with you. I have never struggled with depression, ever. My mother had a struggle with depression, and that was one of those things where I said, you know what, God, I will never go there. I'm not going there. I haven't gone there, but I'm going to tell you what, I've been on the edge looking in and thinking, you know what, why don't I just jump? And maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe what you thought was going to happen hadn't happened yet. Or maybe how you thought it would happen hasn't happened yet. Some of you have been scolded and chided and made fun of because you've come to be a part of this body. People just can't understand. Why would you want to go there? I mean, they don't have anything. I mean, I've been asked, why don't you want to plant another church? we got them on every corner. What I've found in the midst of this is the things I've taken for granted all my life, I don't take for granted anymore. Now, if that sounds like your experience, I want you to raise your hand. That's most of us, okay? That's most of us. Do you feel like you're under attack? I want to give you some good news. You are. And I I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. I really mean that. We are under attack. And it's something that as Christians, we need to be alert to. This is not just something that happens. I mean, you don't just spin a dial and today it's a bad day and tomorrow's a good day. We are under attack. And I'll tell you why. When you obey God, when you step out in faith, and you do what God has called you to do, you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted by people who don't understand, but they're not our enemies, okay? And you will be persecuted by the enemy. You know why? Because the enemy hates Jesus Christ. And he hates us because we represent Jesus Christ. He attacked God one time. didn't work very well. He lost his position, was cast out of heaven. And so he no longer attacks God head on. But he attacks what is dearest to God, and that's his children. You think about your children. Man, if somebody attacks my baby or my grandbaby, they got a fat boy to deal with, okay? I'm going to get all up in their grill. Guess what? God will fight for us. God will fight for us. But we are under attack, and we need to realize it. We need to recognize it, and we need to understand that, you know, when we step out and obey God, it's not the yellow brick road to us, okay? It's a battlefield filled with foxholes and a lot of stuff, okay? Satan doesn't want 
you to survive. He doesn't want you to thrive. And he doesn't want this church to thrive. Okay? This is not news to you. Let, let me... Attention. He does not want Eagle's Wing to survive. He doesn't want it to thrive. He wants it to die. And the more of us he can kill in the process, the better off it will be. But here's the thing. When God's people begin to step out in faith and they claim what God has promised them, and they start living out, actually living out what the Scripture says, we become extremely dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. The climate starts to change. The atmosphere starts to change in in communities, in, in subdivisions. A different kind of culture rises up. And you know what? Satan does not want that to take place. He wants there to be discouragement and depression and fear and anger, frustration. And so he's attacking because, folks, the ground that we are standing on, and I don't literally mean this school, but, but I do mean this school in a sense. The ground we're standing on, whatever he's given you to stand firm on, is valuable ground. The cost of it is uncalculable. Maybe incalculable, I don't know. But you can't calculate it. It's valuable ground. And here's a spiritual truth. If ground is valuable, you take it inch by inch. And Satan owns a lot of property that he doesn't want to give up. And folks, where we're standing, spiritually speaking, he's owned in the past. He may have owned it in your life. But all of a sudden, you've decided, you know what? I'm going for broke. I mean, that's what I told God. I said, God, I'm 55 years old. i got a few more years of serving you. You know what? I'd rather die serving you than die over there in some ministry that's not accomplishing anything, but it's taking care of me. It's meeting my physical needs. I want to spiritually serve you. And you know what? Satan took that. Okay, well, come on out and we'll see if you really mean that. And so I planted my feet, and you've planted your feet, and you know what? The attack has come. And you know what? Satan's not going to give up any ground without a fight. Ground that costs nothing is worth nothing. If you find yourself taking ground by leaps and bounds, you're in a trap. But if you find every inch you push, if it's in your family, if it's raising your children, if it's at work, if it's in a project, a mission endeavor that God's called you to be a part of, it's going to be inch by inch, step by step. Folks, I believe God has a plan. I believe He's got a purpose for us. You know what? I don't want you to be blindsided by what He's doing. And so this morning, I'm just going to share a few simple things. But here's a verse that whenever it gets overwhelming for me, I remind myself of. It's found in 2 Thessalonians 3.13. But as few brethren, and I'm going to paraphrase here, and sistren, okay? Brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. Here's another spiritual principle of warfare for you. If the enemy is not attacking you, you are not a threat. He doesn't waste time and he doesn't waste effort on non-threats. If you're not a threat, then you're a tool. I mean, that's just that simple. So you may not be continually under attack, but it'll be pretty constant. We are either a threat to the kingdom of darkness or we are a tool of the kingdom of darkness. There's no static position. There's no place. You can't stand on the yellow line. You're either a threat or a tool. The only thing I know of to try to stay on the yellow lines are possums, okay? And possums don't fare well here, and the armadillos have invaded, and they're even dumber than possums, okay? You try to stay on a yellow line, you will get run over. And so there's no static position. So if you don't feel, if you've not felt any attack, or you're wondering, Nelson, what in the world are you talking about? Then you've not done anything that warrants an attack. But if you're like most of us, you may say, hey, you know what? I'm not just under attack, I'm under siege. I mean, this is full scale. So I want to be faithful this morning as, as a pastor. And I, just, I want you to be aware of the enemy's tactics and, and the enemy himself. And understand there are some things that ensure that we can stand. So this is not going to be about the enemy. This is going to be about how we defeat the enemy. One thing I think you need to realize is that we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Big difference. Okay? Always remember that. Jesus Christ won the victory. So even if you're under attack today, and that's what I've entitled this sermon, is even if you're under attack, you can snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. I don't care how dark it is where you're at. You can still be victorious. The key to it, though, is, is to understand that we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. One little preposition. The difference is an M. Far and from. Our position, folks, in Christ gives us victory. We are already victorious. But you know what? We can have victory on a regular basis 
not just in the end, on a regular, daily basis, if we'll appropriate what Scripture teaches us. So I'm just going to walk through this. Like I said, none of this is going to be rocket science. Most of you already know this, but the first thing I want you to see this morning is we have to anticipate our enemy. When football teams play each other, they watch film. They break those films down. I mean, they look for little bitty things that will give them clues what the other team's going to do. The same's true in the military. I mean, we have a whole host of intelligence gathering devices and, and agencies looking for little bitty small things, tendencies, habits. And so this morning, by anticipate. I mean, we need to understand our enemy, and we need to understand his schemes before the attack ever starts. I'm just going to tell you, once the attack starts, it's hard to get up to speed if you had not done your homework. Amen? I mean, it's, it's a little late when you go to take the test. I used to hear guys pray this at seminary. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, help me, help me, help me on this test. Well, they didn't study any, and there was no... There was, y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all prayed the same prayer. I have to. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, help me, help me, help me. Well, there was nothing for the Holy Spirit to draw from. You didn't study. You stayed up and watched a football game or or whatever. And the same's true once the attack starts. Sometimes it's a little late. I mean, you can still get the victory, but there's a whole lot of blood shed and a whole lot of damage done that doesn't have to be done. So this morning, I just I want to give you some things that will help you understand the devil's MO, his modus operandi. Do you realize that his modus operandi, his MO, never changes? You know why it never changes? Because 99.99999, as far as you want to go, percent of the time, it works. If it works, why change? I mean, if somebody can't stop a play in football, run it until they stop it. Well, that's what he does. And so he, he just continues on. And that's why he's so wildly successful. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 tells us to put on the full armor of God that you might be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Front page news, the devil has a scheme. He has a plan. Literally, the word there is methodia. That's the Greek word. It's It's the same word we get our word method from. It means scheme or wild. The devil has a method of attack, and he uses it every time. Now, the arrow that he fires may be a little different, but the method is always the same. And we need to realize that the method is the same. That word method means a well-crafted, deceitful, filled with trickery. It's a a word that comes from two words, meta and odas. Meta means in or around, and odas means a road or a way. Exodus, X is out of, Odas road, road out of. In the Old Testament, the book of Exodus is the road out of captivity. And so the devil has an Odas. He's, he's trying to build a highway. And guess where he's trying to build that highway to? This little space between this ear and this ear, right here. He wants in your head. Because once he gets in your head, it's easier to get control of what you do. If he can control your head, guess what? He controls your thoughts. If he controls your thoughts, you know what happens? He controls your actions. If he controls your actions, you're not a threat anymore. Now, that can be unpure thoughts. Okay? Get that out of the way and say, he give you unpure thoughts. But that's not most of the time. That's some of the time. But you know what he does? He sends things like, Hopelessness, just out of nowhere. Hopelessness and despair, frustration, loneliness, discouragement, condemnation, anger, suspicion, fear, envy, jealousy, pride. And you know what? He fires those until one of them sticks. And when one of them sticks, the door cracks and road construction begins in earnest. In the ancient warfare, if you separated your enemy's head from his shoulders, he posed no more threat. You know what? Warfare hadn't changed spiritually one iota. If the enemy can get in our head and he can control our thoughts, we don't pose a threat. Cut off the head of your opponent, no threat. And so, folks, understand the devil's M.O. is to attack your mind. You know what his voice sounds like? 
I mean, I, I, some of you probably heard it since this service started. Don't listen to him. He doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. He lives in some fairy tale world. He's a pastor. He doesn't live in the real world. Folks, I lived in the real world before I became a pastor. I still live in it. Folks, this is where the battles fall. It's five or six inches, depending on how big your head is. Maybe a little more. That's why we're commanded over and over and over to guard our minds, to keep our thoughts under control, to stand firm. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds or fortresses. We are destroying, and listen, the first sentence there, it sounds like we're in an ancient army and we're laying siege to something, but look how it changes, that warfare, look what it's talking about. For we are destroying speculations, right up here, speculations, and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Or we should be taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Folks, we have to recognize that the battle is fought in our heads and that we don't fight flesh and blood. You're not fighting against your spouse, your husband or your wife. You're not fighting against your children. You're not fighting against your boss. You're not fighting against that company that's come in and bought your company and now you don't have a place to work every day. You're not fighting against the guy that cut you off in traffic or grabbed that last sharp TV that you've been waiting on for 24 hours as you camped out on Friday. That's not who you're fighting. You're fighting an enemy that's not flesh and blood. It's not human. Ephesians 6.12 says that our battle is against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. In other words, you're fighting the devil and his demonic cord. You're fighting a real spiritual enemy, and you're not just fighting one that's willy-nilly here and there. You're fighting a very highly organized, united front. They have one purpose in mind, and that's to destroy us. They have one way to do it, and they want to control our mind. If they control our mind, then you know what? They control our actions. So we have to understand the enemy's method. Most of the attacks that we endure can be stopped dead in their tracks if we just learn to recognize a few very clear traits of the enemy's personality and his purpose. If I just know a few things about him, then you know what? I'll have some truth in here that I can count on every time. I'm just going to give you a couple. Jesus sums up in two statements the personality and the purpose of the devil. And both of them are found in the Gospel of John. If you grab these statements, you grab hold of them, and you appropriate them in your life and in your heart, you know what? You will be able to recognize the enemy quickly. And if you recognize him quickly, then you know what? It doesn't matter where or when he attacks you'll recognize that this is the enemy. Our problem is we get attacked and we go through this process of, oh, what have I done wrong? Why is this happening to me? When all of, you know, we need to realize this is the devil and he's attacking me. I must be doing something right. Now, if you're living in rebellion and sin, okay, it's a whole different story, but I don't think I'm talking to very many people like that. I think I'm talking to people that are going after God the best they know how. And so if you're being attacked, guess what? What I'm going to share with you now will help you. It'll help you recognize him. If you recognize him, then you know the enemy. In John 8, verse 44, Jesus doesn't mince any words in describing the, the nature and the personality of our adversary. This is what he says. He says, you, and he's talking to religion of his day. He's talking to, to men that could care less about people. They're just concerned about rules and regulations. And this is what he says, You are of your father the devil. Now that's pretty strong words. That just kind of tears everybody's picture of Jesus being meek and mild and all that stuff up. He says, You are of your father the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. And listen to what he... Now here's what I want you to understand. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. That's just pretty plain. That's what it says in the Greek. Just exactly what it says there in the English. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar 
and the father of lies. Jesus says the enemy is a liar. And so when he attacks you, and he begins to to assail you and accuse you, is he telling the truth? Y'all look like a bunch of deer in headlights, because this is what will happen, okay? If you know Christ, he's lying. Now, he may be using some truth, but you can bet at the end, when the accusation gets fully painted, it's a lie, because he is a liar. That's what Jesus says. So if we recognize that he's a liar, even when he uses Bible verses, has he ever used a Bible verse on you? He did Jesus. He has me. I'm sure he has you. Whenever he uses a Bible verse, folks, he is a liar. He is a master at lying. Those lies that you don't measure up. You're not good enough. God can't ever use you. You're a failure. Or a million other things that he might say. You could kind of fill in the blank for yourself. It's a lie. Many of you know Junior Hill. Now, Junior's lost a lot of weight. But I remember when Junior was really big. And Junior tells a story about being somewhere in a hotel in the middle of nowhere in South Alabama or South Mississippi. And he's sitting out on the curb. They were having some rip-roaring time outside the motel. He couldn't sleep. So finally he goes in, he gets in the bathtub, covers himself with pillows, and he said, the devil just said, you're fat. Now, Junior's big, big. He said, I realized, you know, the Scripture said he's a liar. So I said, devil, I'm not fat. You're a liar. Folks, he is a liar in whatever he tells us. And if you won't believe his lies, he has no partner. And if he has no partner, he has no way to make an inroad into your mind. John 10.10, Jesus goes a little bit more. He says very very clearly that the enemy has a purpose in everything he does. It's cloaked, it's hidden. But if you grab hold of this, you'll be amazed at how clearly those hidden things that he tries to work in, the light will fall on them. In John 10, 10, it it simply says this. I'm not going to read the whole verse. I'm just going to get the front of it because this is what I want you to understand. The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. The thief comes only to, to steal, kill, and destroy. I want you to say that with me, okay? The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's it. If he is attacking you, he's trying to steal something. He's trying to kill something. He's trying to destroy something. He wants to rob you and he wants to rob me of every promise God's given us. He wants to take what's yours and what's mine by God's divine proclamation. What's ours by right and position as being sons and daughters of the King. Our promises, our inheritance, our joy, our families... Our job, our lives. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. Folks, that's it. The Bible says he is a liar. That's his personality. A liar and a murderer. And his purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy. Now, you you can learn all kinds of spiritual warfare techniques and tactics and all these kind of special prayers and all this other stuff. And they won't help you one iota unless you realize the devil is a liar and a murderer. And he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Now, to be honest with you, that's really all you need to recognize him. Because every time he comes, he will come lying. He will use a lie. And every time he comes, he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's it. He never comes to build, to encourage, or to help you grow. Now, he may lie to you and think that what he's wanting you to do will help you, but it won't. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Now, have I got my point across? He's a liar. That's his personality. comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's his purpose. Now, how many are you going to hang out with somebody like that? None of us. I might get lied to a couple of times, but by the third time, I'm going to distance myself from somebody like that. So... To recognize the attack, we've got to anticipate him. We've got to understand him. He's a liar who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Now, that's really 
There are a lot of other things we can know about him, but that's really the basics. That's blocking and tackling 101 in spirituality. He's a liar. comes to kill, steal, and destroy. You say, Nelson, you just keep saying that. That's because some of you are not getting it. He's a liar who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's how we anticipate him. We listen for the lie. We recognize the lie. We know that that lie has come to kill, steal, and destroy us. So we take control of our thoughts. Now, I want to give you four things, four very simple things that will help you and help me apply the victory of the cross when the devil comes to attack. Okay? These are four things. You know, preachers like to use things that start with the same letter. Well, I didn't do this purposely. It just happened, okay? I've spent hours trying to do it, and it's mechanical. When God does it, it just works, okay? I want you to understand Jesus didn't leave us defenseless. Amen? We are not, we're not like chickens in the highway, okay? It's not if we're going to get run over, but when. That's not who we are, okay? I want you to understand that. We're not at the mercy of the devil. When Jesus died on the cross, when he was raised from that grave, folks, he broke the devil's back. He shattered his power. He no longer, the enemy no longer has unrestrained power on this planet. Jesus took back the keys of death and the grave. Jesus has the power. And folks, he, one hallelujah. Jesus has the power, and you know what? He has given it to us through His Holy Spirit. He's placed His Holy Spirit. We spent five or six weeks on the Holy Spirit. And so as long as we rest in the finished work of Christ, and we apply it to every situation that comes along, folks, we're going to be victorious. I don't care how hot the battle is right now in your life, and I'll guarantee you it's it's hot in some of your lives. It's withering in some of your lives. Some of you want to give up. You're asking yourself, why do I keep trying? Here's why. Because their victory is coming. Victory is coming. Now, there are four Ps that I remind myself of whenever I'm attacked. First one is put on the armor of God. Now, I'm not going to break all this down. I mean, I, I've seen some spiritual gymnastics and exegesis that was wonderful, but I'm just, I'm just going to be simple and plain here. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and through the first part of verse 11, I want you to listen to what it says. It says, finally, finally, after all this, after Ephesians chapter 1, 2, after I've told you who you are in Christ, in chapter 3 and 4 and 5, I've told you how to live in Christ. Finally now, if you'll believe what I've told you about who you are and you'll live out how I've told you to live, you can do this. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Now, a lot of people read this, be strong and in the strength of your own might. But that's not what this passage says. It says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you might be able to stand firm. To stand firm means to plant your feet about shoulder width and brace yourself. Four times, Paul uses a, a, a root word there. It means to stand firm. It means to resist, to withstand. There are times when, you know what, you go on the offensive, but there are a lot of times when you hold your ground. And that's what it means, hold your ground. I've used this illustration a lot. I don't know if I've used it here, but whenever a Roman legion went into battle, the commander would call his centurions together. The centurions commanded a hundred Roman soldiers. He would give them the battle plan. They knew what was about to take place. That centurion would then go back to his hundred foot soldiers, his infantry soldiers or whatever, and then he would lay out what they were supposed to do. They didn't know everything. And the last thing he would tell them is, you are to stand firm. You are to hold the ground that you stand on. Roman soldiers were not to retreat. If you look at a, a soldier, a Roman outfit, a Roman armor, armament, there's nothing to defend you back here. In fact, 
That centurion, the last thing he would say is, it would be better for you to die on the field of battle than to give up the ground that you're standing on. And they took that serious. In other words, it would be better for you to be carried off on your shield than to turn and run. And if a soldier turned and run, ran, that's not good English, turned and ran, you know what would happen? The soldiers in his unit would, would put him to death. That's pretty harsh, you say. But, folks, that's reality of warfare. And so when Paul looks at that soldier he's chained to, he begins to use that, that imagery that, that everybody understood. And, 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 and four times he says to stand firm. Stand firm. Listen to me. The ground you are standing on, spiritually speaking, has to be held. It may be your family and your children. It may be the place where you are working, the, the spiritual ground that you hold there. It, it could be a, a hundred different things. It could be your marriage. It could be your workplace. It could be this church. But no matter what, you're not to give an inch. You're not to back up. The Bible says stand firm. How do we do that? We do it in His might and in His strength. We put on the full armor of God. What does that mean? Simply, it means put on Jesus Christ. Now, we can get all caught up in the helmet and the shield and all those things. But what Paul is saying here is put on Jesus Christ. By putting on Jesus Christ, Paul takes that Roman soldier and he kind of illustrates it. And he, he takes the pieces of the armament. You know what? We combat the devil's lies with the truth of Jesus. Put on the belt of truth. It's the truth of Jesus that overcomes his lies. We overcome his attacks about our righteousness. How many of you realize that in and of our own selves, we're not, very, we're not righteous at all? Scripture says that, that our righteousness, on our own, like filthy rags. But guess what? We are no longer dependent on our righteousness. We have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's like a breastplate. It's like a breastplate. And folks, when, when he attacks our righteousness, we just rest in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When we encounter chaos and confusion, how many of you understand what I'm talking about? You had some confusion this week, some chaos. You know what? We stand square in the peace that Jesus Christ gives. We put on those sandals of peace. We just, we, we, okay, God, everything else around me is churning. But I know I have peace in you and peace from you, and I am at peace with you. Folks, if you're at peace with God, He'll take care of the chaos and confusion. When the future looks bleak and the path you're on seems impossible, what do you do? You rest in faith that the Lord will do what He has promised to do. You take that shield of faith up and you, you pull it over in front of you. When the enemy screams accusations and condemns us for our sin. Ever do that to you? I hear that a lot. I must be the only one in here that sins very much. He, he wears me out with it every time. But you know what? I can still rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I know that I know that I know that I'm saved. And I know that because I'm saved, I have assurance that you know what? The blood of Christ has paid for my sins. And I, no matter how much he accuses me, you remember, he's still a liar. I put that helmet of salvation on. That helmet shuts out the noise. When we're attacked from the left and from the right, and there seems to be no way out, you know what we do? We speak the Word of God. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And you know what? The enemy has to flee. When we put on Christ... Listen, when we put on Christ, we're not putting on pieces of armor. We're putting on Jesus Christ. That means Jesus surrounds us. In other words, the enemy to get to us has to go through Jesus. Now, that makes you stand up a little straighter, plant your feet a little deeper, because you're not by yourself. I love what Zechariah 4, 6 says. It's not by might. It's not by power. But by my Spirit, says the Lord, we put on the armor of Christ. We're strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Now, there are all kinds of other weapons that are available to us. I'm just going to give you three. All of you know these, but I'm just going to remind you of them. 
one of the most powerful weapons that we have is the Word of God. It's the Bible. We proclaim the Word of God. We speak the Word of God. Paul said this is the sword of the Spirit. Satan hates men and women and boys and girls that know their Bible. You don't have to know every detail in this book. You don't have to know tons of stuff. The simple, basic things. You know how to discern what's a lie and what's the truth because you understand the truth. One of the things that has helped me more in my own personal life is I made a decision about 15 years ago that every year I was going to read God's Word through. Now, you can't do that unless you have a plan. And there's all kinds of plans out there, and I've used several of them. But what's happened is, is even though I didn't understand it, I was putting it in here. I was placing it in my heart. And you know what? God's brought up verses. The Holy Spirit's brought those verses to mind when I needed them. Here's an illustration, the best one I know. When Jesus was led by the Spirit of God out into the the Mount of Temptation, out into the wilderness, and and one of the things Kathy and I saw is that area. And it's just bleak and stark, and there's nothing out there but rocks and sand and some bushes, okay? It's about as lonely as you can be. And he fasted. He was fasting. No food. His body physically weakening. Well, what happens? The enemy comes. And the enemy begins to tempt him. And the enemy begins to say, hey, turn those stones into bread. What does Jesus do? He quotes Scripture. Where did he get that Scripture? He learned that Scripture as a little boy, as a young man. And because he had learned it, the the Holy Spirit could take the exact Scripture he needed. And what does Jesus do? He quotes a passage that says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but out of every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Ouch! Stuck him right in the heart. That kind of... We're going to quote Scripture, are we? So the devil comes back. He quotes some Scripture. Jesus quotes some more Scripture. Ouch! Got another one. So he comes one more time. Jesus quotes Scripture. Guess what? Three times is too much. He hits the trail. Listen, if, you, if Jesus could stab him in the heart with Scripture, you and I can too. We are called to read this book. We're called to meditate on this book. We're called to memorize parts of this book. And you know what? If we'll do those things, the Spirit of God has bullets in which to put in our guns so we can shoot. Otherwise, we've got a gun with no ammunition. It's our responsibility to get the ammunition. It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to put it in the gun and to fire it at the right time. Amen? Amen. So we we proclaim the Word of God. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The truth shall set you free. So we need to proclaim the Word of God. We need to put on the whole armor of God. But another thing that will help us, another very powerful weapon, is just prayer. When you pray, when you and I pray, folks, we are declaring that we need help. That we can't do whatever it is that needs to be done apart from God. We're we're declaring that He is sufficient and we're not. We're declaring our insufficiency. Prayer is an acknowledgement that we can't do anything. Now, prayerlessness is likewise a declaration, proclamation. It's a declaration that I can do everything. Because if I don't need to pray, I might not say it that way, but that's my attitude. If I don't pray, then you know what? I don't need God's help. Ephesians 6.18 puts it this way, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with perseverance and petition for all the saints. When you don't know what to do, pray. When you don't know what to say, pray. Call on the Lord of hosts. That, that, word, that, that title, Lord of hosts, means commander of the angel armies. Call on the King of Heaven who has the angels at His disposals. Ask Him to teach you what He's trying to teach you in the midst of the attack. Ask Him to strengthen you. Ask Him to come to your rescue. 
Cry out for Him to destroy the enemy's plans in your life. Cry out for the kingdom of God to come and His will to be done in your life and the situation that you're in as it's done in heaven. You know what? Satan trembles when he finds people on their knees. He doesn't care how long I proclaim and preach, but when I pray, he trembles because he realizes, I realize that I am insufficient and I can't do this on my own. Folks, if we would spend some time on our knees, we'd see less of the devil. Now, the final weapon is one we implemented this morning. I I, I just want to thank Jim and the guys and and the ladies that that lead our worship. I wasn't really looking forward to preaching this sermon. I knew when I studied this week and began to prepare, I knew what this week would be like. I, I have learned a few lessons. But as I sat in my... In the hallway over here, up in there, not my other office, but this one, I, I just sat down and began to read over this, and they began to practice, except they weren't really practicing. They were praising. I'm talking about the presence of God just dropped down in here. I, and the acoustics in my office right in that little hallway are just perfect. I want you to know that. I can sing in there, and I sound as good as they sound out here to myself. And I, I just began to sing along with them. And the atmosphere over me changed. The atmosphere in me changed. I just began to praise God. I just began to sing those songs. I began to remember His goodness. Folks, Satan hates praise. He hates it. You know why? Because when we praise and worship God, we are ascribing that God is good, God is great. He's a grace-filled God. He is worthy. And more than anything else, Satan wants our worship. And when we will not praise God, guess who we praise? In the silence. I know this is going to hurt some people's feelings, but in that silence, we're worshiping the enemy because we refuse to worship God. Praise is one of the most powerful weapons that we have in our arsenal. I mean, I have visited, I'll never forget visiting, many of you knew Andrew Contelmo. I remember visiting him. And, and man, his body was wasting away. I never heard him be negative one time. It was always a praise. It was always a, And you know what? The enemy did not get the glory. God got it. I learned from that. Now, you can sit around, you moan and groan and complain and cry, and i got to tell you, every once in a while, I like to sit down and have a pity party. And you know what? God sits down with me, except He doesn't sit down and put His arm around me. He just kind of sits over there and waits, and when are you going to get through with this? Because as long as I moan and groan, the enemy gets the victory. He gets the worship. But every once in a while, I just decide I've had enough. I decided this morning in that, my little office there, I'd had enough. I'm on praise. And it changed. All week long, I just want to quit. I don't want to quit now, okay? It may change tomorrow, but I don't want to quit now. Tomorrow is Monday. I don't want to quit. You know what? If you will learn to praise God in the midst of the attack, not when the attack, it's easy to praise God when everything's going great. But in the midst of the attack, when it's the hottest and things look the darkest, if you will learn to praise God, He will hunker down with you in that foxhole, and He will not leave you. And when He gets ready to get up, guess what? You can get up with Him and go. Because He's not going to be defeated. I love Psalms 149. I'm going to read the whole psalm to you. Okay? Because it's a powerful weapon if you'll learn to use it. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. And His praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Let Israel be glad in His Maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their King. Let them praise His name with dancing. Let's just take a time out right there. Okay? This going to whack you out. I know this. I'm going to tell you something. If while you're praising, you'll do a few spins and kick your feet up a little bit, things will change quicker. 
Now, we don't dance. That's what I, my daddy taught me. He said, we don't dance. We don't do this. We don't do this and this. Man, I've learned to just kind of two-step every once in a while. I don't do it very well. If you no, notice me up here, it's not because I've lost my balance. I'm dancing. Okay, that's about the best I can do. You might can do better. I wish I could spin and all this stuff, but I can. If you can, go for it. But I'm going to tell you something. This is what the Word of God is. Let them praise His name with dancing. That's right in the Scriptures. Let them sing praises to Him with the timbrel and, and the lyre. That's, a, that's little harps and the little musical instruments. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. Grasp that. If you don't get anything else today, God takes pleasure in you. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. That word salvation is deliverance. He will deliver the afflicted ones. Let the godly ones exult in glory. The word exult means to jump for joy. Let the godly ones jump for joy in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Now listen to, listen to these. It, it changes. All of a sudden, there's a change in this psalm. From being the afflicted ones to being the ones who afflict. Let the high praises of God be in their mouths and a two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is the honor for all His godly ones. Praise the Lord. Praise executes judgment on the devil and on its demons. It chains them up. It binds them with fetters. They can't do what they would like to do. They can't kill, steal, and destroy. Why? Because they are bound in chains of praise. You know what? We can moan, we can groan, and we can wonder why things are happening. Or folks, we can utilize our weapons and get the victory. We can always snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. If you want to consistently have victory, you want to consistently snatch it from those jaws of defeat, you have to anticipate your enemy. You've got to know who he is. You've got to expect he's going to do what he always does. And you've got to apply the victory of the cross. You've got to put on the armor of God. You've got to proclaim the Word of God. You've got to pray. And you've got to praise. Now, there are a lot of other things that are at our disposal. But you know what? If we just use those four basic tools, we will walk in victory. You know what? There can be storms on the outside, but there can be peace on the inside. You know, things cannot be going right, but we can still enjoy the joy of His salvation. It's what we decide to do. Let's pray.